our immune cells have receptors on the surface for these. So they can respond to how we're feeling. So if you're feeling happy and safe, um, motivated, this is reflected in how your immune cells are going to be behaving. And then equally, if you're having more negative emotions, this can also impact how those cells are behaving because they can directly respond to these um, different hormones and neurotransmitters. Hey, all of you Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. This is your doctor, Dr. Body, Mind, Soul, here to expand the collective consciousness of the Body, Mind, Soul Connection so we can all learn to live a truly healthy life. Let's dive in. Dr. Jenna Macciocci is an immunologist who has recently published her first book, Immunity, the Science of Staying Well. In this book, she brings her 20 years experience and education to bear, breaking down how our lifestyle interacts with our immune system and the impact this has on our health. At a time when our immune system has never been more important, I've brought Jenna onto the podcast to really examine the emerging and vital role the immune system has in the body-mind connection and how we can all use this to our advantage. So Jenna, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I really wanted to open the conversation about what the immune system actually is. Because I think we sort of have grown up understanding that the immune system is all about our body's reaction to fighting infection. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you really go into explaining how much more the immune system does for us. That's a great point. And one of the the aspects of this field that I've been in for, for quite a number of years now is because it's more than just infection protection. But that is the kind of lens that we've all um, been conditioned to think of it under. And I think this is really just from, you know, the past 100 years when they really started to discover and understand the immune system, we noticed that if you're missing a bit of your immune system or a bit isn't working properly, you're much more susceptible to infection. So this role in infection protection became kind of the dominant thing that we understood this system was doing for us. But like you say, it's doing so much more. And then I think it's a good place to start to say that we talk about it like it's one thing, but it's actually like a number of things. I mean, the way that, that I certainly teach my immunology students is that it's it's the barriers to our body. So it's the skin, the delicate barrier of your airways and your gut. Um, it's the microbiota that live on those barriers as well as all the white blood cells, you know, under your skin and your tissues. It's basically found in every corner of your body. And it also includes a number of different organs as well. Things like your bone marrow, your lymph nodes, your thymus gland. So these um, sort of collectively make up this system that we call the immune system. Mm. And yes, it does a really good job of infect, uh, protecting us from infection because I like to think of it as we live in a really germy world and the germs were here first. So they're always trying to get into us and our immune system's always trying to knock them back. Um, but it's certainly doing a lot more when we don't, 
even realize it. So day to day, you know, we're breathing in germs, we're exposed to germs all the time, but it's only on the rare occasion that one is successful in getting in and causing an infection that we get all those familiar symptoms of being unwell. But it's also involved in things like growth of our tissues, repair and healing. So if you break an arm, for example, or or even just, you know, sprain something, and you don't have any cut skin, you don't have any infection, your immune system is is involved in repairing that tissue and bringing it back to normal. It's involved in things like pregnancy. It's one of our main cancer surveillance systems in the body. And um, as we're probably going to talk about more today, it's really closely entwined with our mental well-being. So it's got kind of direct lines of communication with our brain and our nervous system. Yes, it's it's this... Really complete system which describes so many different cell lines that are all operating and have their own unique jobs, but it has an influence. Mm-hmm. I guess, of directing what and when they act and how and how they respond to their environment. It's kind of like a sensing system. Like it's, it's there to react to changes to the homeostasis, changes to the norm. So whether that be an infection or, or, or something that is, is, you know, challenging your safety or making you feel a bit unwell, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be infection, but it's responding to anything that might make us not feel good so it's a kind of very reactive system a bit like the mental um the brain and the nervous system it's reactive it's it's taking in information from our environment and then deciding how to respond and that's the key word that I was just going to pick up on actually it's deciding it is Mm -hmm. deciding what is safe and what is not what is what is allowed in and what mm-hmm. is not. Because you mentioned germs um, being, we, we live in a germy world. We're sort of filled with, we obviously have, we have lots of good bacteria, as we know, in what you yes. described as the microbiota of our of our guts, as well as on our skin as well. You know, yes. everywhere, we're just covered in our, in our mouths, everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, and, and it's our immune system, which is deciding, deciding mm-hmm. what is, um, what is a danger to us. And yeah, isn't, and I think that's just such a key role yes. um, of of the immune system that we that we don't of, often recognise. So it, it's it's a decider, it's a controller. Exactly, I, it's got like these key ways that it can say, okay, that is a pattern belonging to a germ, so that's something that's not us, and that's a pattern belonging to us, and it's being able to make that decision. But it's not just about, is it a germ or is it part of us? But it's, is it dangerous and is it um, not dangerous? So it can pick up on patterns of danger as well, even in the absence of infection, which I think is is really fascinating. Yes. And that's why, for example, the immune system is so tightly um, associated and communicative with our nervous system mm-hmm. because our nervous system is much more easy to understand that it's primed for danger. So almost our nervous system is helping our immune system to decide what is dangerous and what is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you Definitely. expand a little bit about how how the nervous system is is actually biochemically interacting with our immune system because you call it the brain immune axis 
in your book Mm -hmm. and you're really drawing on the emerging field which I've talked about before on the podcast of psychoneuroimmunology which is this wonderful field of of medicine which is um, emerging. The way I like to see it, it sounds like it's magic. How is your brain and your body communicating? It's not actually by magic, but it's a variety of different sort of molecular pathways that have evolved to help us be able to integrate all these signals from things that we're seeing and hearing around us to help inform our immune system should it prepare for danger. Um, and the one of the big ones is probably the autonomic nervous system. So this is the two branches of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic, people might be familiar with it being called the fight or flight response. So that's the thing that's going to get you out of danger, going to mobilize you to run for your life. Um, And that's the one that's activated when we're stressed. And then there's the counterbalance to that, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is often called the rest and digest. Um, arm of your nervous system. So the this is really closely tuned into how our immune system's functioning. Um, there's the vagus nerve, which is um, this, it, vagus means wandering nerve. So it's this long wandering nerve in our body and it's actually involved in what we call the inflammatory reflex. So when you have inflammation in your body, um, you tune into that rest and digest part of your nervous system it helps switch off the inflammation so help resolve things when the inflammation is no longer needed um, then there's other aspects of the nervous system that are kind of directly uh, in touch with our immune system through nerve fibers so i mentioned earlier we have all these different immune organs like lymph nodes and the bone marrow and the thymus gland that are involved in various different functions of the immune system. And these are highly innervated tissues. So they're full of nerves from our our nervous system. And that that means that things that we're thinking and doing and and feeling can actually affect those tissues directly. Being stressed, for example, can affect the bone marrow's ability to produce fresh new immune cells um, and that kind of thing. So you have these sort of direct connections with the nerve fibres. Um, The other thing is really the social hormones, I like to call them. So oxytocin, the love hormone, serotonin, um, all of these different kind of neurotransmitters as well. Our immune cells have receptors on the surface for these, so they can respond to how we're feeling. So if you're feeling happy and safe, um, motivated, this is reflected in how your immune cells are going to be behaving. And then equally, if you're having more negative emotions, this can also impact how those cells are behaving because they can directly respond to these um, different hormones and neurotransmitters. And then there's the the gut bacteria, which I think plays a, a role as well. We know that about 70% of the immune systems in the gut. And we know that the largest microbiota in the body is also found in the gut. And these bugs are eating the food we're eating. They're producing all sorts of neurotransmitters. They're interacting directly with our immune cells, but they're also affecting our brain as well. And there's this gut-brain axis. And I kind of feel like the gut-brain axis and the immune-brain axis are kind of in this triangle where they're all kind of collectively communicating together. You mentioned inflammation and this 
core function of the immune response. So let's just talk about inflammation because it's so important in in our response, not only to infection, but to danger. And actually, this is such a key process that goes awry um, and and, and can lead to so much of our ill health. I was thinking about this the other day because I I, um, I, I did a lecture for students yesterday and, and introduced them to the topic of inflammation for the first time to them. And I was thinking when I was a student, I learned about inflammation as this, you know, acute response to infection or, you know, when you, when you um, bruise yourself, you get the swelling, redness, pain, heat. We're all, you know, we're all familiar with um, what, what happens when something gets inflamed. If you cut your finger, it's got those cardinal features um, and that's helping to protect the tissues, heal them and repair them. But it's a very short-term thing. It's it's essential for our health. If we didn't mount an inflammatory response, then we wouldn't be able to survive. But what I also teach now and how the field's moved on since 20-odd years ago when I was a student is that inflammation can also be a bad thing in certain cases. So we, um, we know that it's um, beneficial in the short term, but we know that it can also cause our own tissues some collateral damage when it's not properly regulated. So if we have um, a chronic inflammation or kind of elevated baseline of inflammation, that this can actually be um, a predisposing factor to many different chronic diseases um, that are quite prevalent in our modern society. So things like heart disease um, is probably one of the main ones that that jumps out, but um, also sort of metabolic uh, issues uh, as well. And then, of course, chronic inflammation is associated with many other conditions like asthma and autoimmune diseases. And it's the constant kind of cycles of damage and repair that inflammation puts in our tissues that can actually lead to kind of almost like a fibrosis, like a scarring and kind of damage the function of our delicate tissues. So it's something that um, we all need to try and reserve for when we need it to keep it low in our bodies most of the time but when we do cut our finger or you know have an injury or an infection it's there and it's able to respond properly in that short-term period and it's really interesting that you mentioned about inflammation and the immune brain connection because this is something that's you know absolutely fascinating that's come out in the last few years um and I always like to think about it, you know, the last time somebody had the flu or felt unwell, what, what, how did your behavior change? You know, for me, I think I'm socially withdrawn. I feel lethargic. I have changes in my appetite. I may have a fever. Um, I might be sleeping worse or napping more. You know, all of these behaviors that I'm doing, this is in response to inflammation in my body. So we call them sickness behaviors. There's a whole suite of different behavioral adaptations. And this is caused by the the cytokines, these communication molecules of our immune system, acting directly on our brain and telling our brain, okay, this person's unwell, they've hurt themselves or they've got an infection they have to change their behavior. They shouldn't be going out and behaving as normal um, because that's not going to be conducive to getting them well again. Um, And I think this is just kind of, for me, it's mind-blowing that the immune system is able to do this. It's like telling our behavior to change. Anyway, 
more recently, they've started to realise that this could be um, a link between um, why some people suffer from depression and that depression is refractory to the standard treatments out there. And there's been some clinical trials done recently where they've given um, people with depression anti-inflammatory drugs and lowered that inflammation in their bodies and actually seen them um, have improvements in their mental well-being. Uh, so it's kind of opened up a whole new area of, of potential treatment for people suffering with things like depression. Because the symptoms of depression have that overlap with those sickness behaviours. You might feel lethargic and socially withdrawn and a bit down and, you know, those kind of um, things that we feel when we're ill, but maybe not in a sort of acute sense. Which really brings brings the question, you know, are people who are depressed physically ill as in are they inflamed you know is there are they producing an inflammatory response and and that's why they're displaying those behaviors in reaction to the cytokines that are being released at probably very low levels that we're not used to detecting yes um, in the medical in the medical field at the moment but um and I think it's something that still needs a lot of unpicking and a lot of attention in the medical field to to really help uh, understand this a little bit more so that we can help people who are struggling with their mental well-being and if there are things that we can do based on lowering inflammation then that's you know that's a great uh, additional tool that we might have to support people with their mental health mm-hmm. uh, in an inflammatory response is a way of mobilizing our body's resources in order to react to danger. Yeah, I think the stress response is a great example of that because, you know, it's supposed to get you out of danger, get you to safety. Um, And it depends how we think about stress, but I think um, most of us probably have a negative relationship with stress, but actually it can be really positive. It can make you really challenge yourself to go above and beyond, maybe on a project that you're really engaged in to win a race. You know, we do need, we need the stress chemistry to get us out of bed in the morning. Uh, It's a short, sharp kind of boost. And actually it's, it's really good for our immune system to have short periods of stress because it helps mobilize lots of white blood cells into the bloodstream. They can, you know, perform their surveillance function. Um, But at the same time, it's very energy intensive to mount a stress response. Your body's got to triage all sorts of resources towards that. And if that goes on too long, it starts to say, well, I'm actually going to just switch off the immune system because that's also quite an energy intensive system and we can't really do both at the same time. So that's why when you're stressed, you're much more vulnerable to being unwell or having a flare of a chronic condition, for example. Um, And and also stress in itself in the chronic sense is a predisposing factor to to developing sort of um, long-term conditions uh, like uh, heart disease, that kind of thing, certain cancers. So it's it's because because the immune system is being directed to the stress response, it's then unable to do its other functions like survey for illness. Yes, and exactly. And sort of also the body is not resting and regenerating. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all had those moments where we've just been super stressed and then inevitably we always start to feel unwell, picking up every bug that's going around and yeah. 
that's right and like we, it's so often that we run on adrenaline until the holiday and then on our yeah. first the first the first or second day of annual leave you suddenly come down with something because yeah exactly uh, the body can only keep going for so long and then it's inevitable that because mm-hmm. you've been stressed the body um yeah is, is not able to to do the normal surveillance that it normally would do for for, for bugs but most mm-hmm. importantly I think what we're missing is is the acknowledgement that it's then not surveying for other things like yeah. cancers, for exactly. example. Yeah. And also our sort of metabolic health, you know, the stress hormones, like cortisol, um, also the things like adrenaline, these are mobilizing sugar into our blood because it's it's designed to safety out of danger. Um, so it's messing with our blood sugar and that's uh, problematic over the long term as well. So it can sort of predispose to metabolic um, conditions like type 2 diabetes over the longer term. And we know that having a deregulated blood sugar is not good for our immune system. It doesn't function very well when our blood sugar is kind of all over the place. So um, it's much harder to control your blood sugar when you're stressed. So it's kind of all these multiple layers which make stress um, transform into this real uh, burden on our health. I think when actually it's designed to to be a good thing to help us, but in the modern world, it's certainly kind of um, not working out that way, like you could say. Well, yeah, we're certainly in an environment which seems to alert us to danger all the time. I mean, yeah, news cycle, particularly at the moment, oh my goodness, is yeah. just constantly pumping out messages of danger. Yeah. And I and this is a really great place to to just say that actually what's also very interesting is that it's not even the actual danger that our body is responding to it's the perceived danger yeah. that our body is responding to so it may not I mean at the moment we have yeah I think that's a really key point that's something that on a personal level I've um had to do a lot of work with because I'm kind of a natural stress head so I just go straight to like the red zone whenever something is like I've got a big work project or too many things to do or you know I read something or see something on the news and um, just from my own research and writing the book and realizing that actually stress is not designed to be a bad thing has made me start to question how I look at stress and also how society puts out messages about stress. It's always kind of got negative connotations. Um, But how much it's going to produce a bad or good effect is going to depend on the lens that we choose to view it under. And that's something that's sort of under our control. We can acknowledge that we expect stress to be debilitating and not good for us or we can start to understand that we can find better ways to cope with it and maybe there's some benefits to stress so yeah I'm definitely trying to see my own stress when it's happening and recognizing it kind of taking a step back from it just having that pause and being a bit mindful for how I then react and also owning it, sort of trying to say, yeah, I am stressed about this, but maybe I need to write it down. I need to just go and, you know, mind dump with somebody um, and then try and turn it 
into a positive thing somehow. Um, and that's been a, a bit of a journey. It's not something that's easy, but it is something that we can have influence over. And I think that that's, you know, something that a tool that we should start to be teaching probably in schools <laughs> so that um, we all kind of find different ways to manage stress because it's not going away. Our modern lives were stressful before COVID and they've only gone and got worse. And there's going to be probably a big mental health fallout from COVID because of what's happened in the last 12 months. Yeah, I think that it's going to be more important than ever that we start to um, embrace some tools to help our mental health. A hundred percent. You mentioned that it should be taught in schools and and, and this is this is so important because from the research that you also bring into your book about adverse childhood events, what goes on in our early childhood also has a huge impact on how our body is then wired to respond to danger. Can you sort of take us through what that research actually shows us about how our immune and nervous system develop and then later impact our health as adults? Yeah, exactly. I think the immune system and the nervous system is, is a system that systems that are always developing. Um, so we're not born with a kind of fully functional uh, and, and formed nervous system or immune system. It's definitely it, it's kind of developing along that timeline. And childhood is a, a huge time for development. And there's a lot of studies that show that childhood stress, so having really um, horrific sort of adverse childhood events, um, can damage the the nervous system in a way that um, it kind of almost changes the, the the neural patterning and how people are able to cope with different situations. That it's actually linked to long term health problems, including problems with the immune system much later in life, so like decades down the line. Um, and I think it's almost like people end up with a hypersensitivity to things like stressful events and they start to perceive things as danger, dangerous. So they're always on this kind of, you know, high stress alert. And I kind of think of it as, you know, we all have a kind of container of what we can cope with mentally and having some sort of adverse event in your childhood can sort of almost shrinks your container. So it's much smaller than everyone else's. So it's going to tick over the edge really easily. And then we know, obviously, there's sort of a trickle down effect on our immune system. And I think that people in those situations, we need to definitely make sure they have a way to empty their container much more frequently and regularly because they don't have the same capacity as somebody who hasn't maybe gone through an adverse childhood event. I think it's some statistics like children who've suffered from four or more adverse childhood events are like um, double at risk for asthma. People with autoimmune conditions later in life, they are much more frequently going to be hospitalised for their condition uh, if they've suffered from adverse childhood events. So there's sort of really strong links and it's the disconnect, you know, these things are happening in childhood, but we're not seeing the ill effects on the physical health till much, much later in life. So we really need to put things in place early on that we can protect their health and um, reduce this additional risk. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating, really fascinating and, and quite and sad. I know. And also it's funny that you mention um, autoimmunity there. And I find it really interesting in your book that you highlight this disparity of autoimmunity. So 
autoimmunity being um, your immune system, I guess, mistaking parts of you being dangerous to you. It's, it's so much more common in women. And uh, I find that I find that really interesting to contemplate on a sort of, again, environmental basis and perhaps a reaction to the degree of stress that women experience in, in modern day life. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, autoimmune diseases are um, definitely complex in in their origins and there's definitely uh, normally a genetic component, but the majority of uh, reasons resulting in someone developing an autoimmune disease are environmental. And I call it like the mosaic of autoimmunity. So lots of different environmental inputs shift that balance in your immune system. So instead of looking at our own tissues and cells and saying, oh, this is part of us, we don't uh, respond to that. The immune cells get confused and they start responding to parts of us when they shouldn't. And um, as you mentioned, it, the statistics on women and autoimmune disease are unreal. So there are eighty percent of autoimmune diseases are found in women. So part of that is put down to there may be a hormonal uh, role because hormonally women and men are different and we see changes around things like uh, menopause and pregnancy when there's a hormonal shift but that's not the only story we've also seen this divide rise massively since the 1950s um, and part of the hypothesis of why that is is because that was from that time, women have been more likely to go back to work after having kids. They're more likely to work full time and they're more likely to pursue careers as well as managing motherhood. And I mean, I'm just talking about statistics. I don't want anyone to feel offended if this is not your experience, but um, it seems that women are more likely to pick up a lot of the household day-to-day jobs than a male partner in a heterosexual relationship even if they're both working full time. So they might both parties might be working full time, but the women tend to do more of the childcare, more of the cleaning and cooking and those kind of domestic jobs on top of having perhaps um, uh, you know, a quite intense career. And it's the stress of this shift in life that is um, thought to also kind of feed into this dramatic rise in autoimmune diseases in women that we see. Which, uh, which has only got worse through this pandemic, sadly, as well. Yeah. And you've mentioned um, that another factor, which I think I found really interesting to read of in your book, was the impact of loneliness mm-hmm. on, our, on our immune system. And you described it as, you know, your body, again, recognizing or feeling when you're, when you're, uh, when you're lonely or when you're alone, that you're in mortal danger. It triggers a a visceral and very biological response of danger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I like to think of it as, um, we have our sort of emotional well-being and then we have our social well-being. And these are kind of the foundations upon which the kind of psychoneuroimmunology is, is going to be built on. And we are, we're social creatures. We can't escape our um, our evolution in a sense. Um, we've evolved to rely on each other and living communities have different roles, not just for our survival, but also to thrive. Um And I think that, you know, social health is kind of our ability to make 
meaningful relationships with others and nurture those relationships um, and be able to adapt to different social situations. So being lonely is quite subjective. You might spend a lot of time alone, but you're not lonely because you have the safety of knowing that you have a, a network or a community of people, but you could be in a crowded room and feel lonely because you don't have any connection with those people. So it's definitely a kind of subjective thing, but it's really about the quality of relationships that you have in your life. And um, loneliness, I think, is something we've seen in the headlines so often in the last year with all the lockdowns. Um, and the interesting thing is actually that some of the more early studies on loneliness and health showed that lonely people have a really impacted antiviral response. So they're not so able to respond to viruses because viruses transmit easily through people. So when people meet and communicate. So when we're in contact with people and we don't feel lonely, we have good antiviral responses because there's a possibility we could pick up a virus just by being in contact with people. And we've seen that with COVID. That's why we have to socially distance. But when we're distanced and we're lonely, the immune system's like, well, I don't need that antiviral part so much. So I'm kind of going to sit it on the back burner. Um, so then if you do get a virus from whatever source, then you might feel uh, you suffer it a little bit worse. So yeah, loneliness is definitely something that is pervasive now in modern world. I think social media is not really a replacement for good social connections. I think it might even be detrimental to good social connections. I do think that there's a place for video calls with family and friends. I don't know about you, but <laughs> spend so much time on video calls with work. Sometimes I don't want to video call family and friends, but there's a lot of um, the, the vagus nerve is really attached to our different facial muscles so when we're communicating with people and we change our facial expression and we're happy and, and talking it's actually quite relaxing and it's quite good for kind of nurturing that anti-loneliness feeling um, and supporting our immune system that way so try get those video calls in with the friends and family that you're missing if you can but I also appreciate sometimes people don't want to be on um, on video screens anymore after you know jobs and all sorts but yeah it is really important if there's things that you can do in your community as well studies have shown that doing acts of kindness if you can drop something off for an elderly neighbor or get involved in any community initiatives to um, support people in your area during things like national lockdowns then this also is really beneficial for your for your well-being the sort of way I like to think about it is that there's a bunch of different tools you can use, but you as a person have to sort of pick the right ones for you. Definitely, there's a lot of evidence for mindfulness and meditation in calming down that fight or flight response. But the way I see it is, you know, when I'm really stressed about something, the last thing I'm going to be able to do is sit down and meditate. So we also need some really kind of real-time tools that we can use in the moment that are going to send the signal to our brain that we're safe and calm down that stress response. 
And the sort of best ones that I could suggest to people is just extending your exhale. So trying to take deep breaths and really extending that exhale as long as you can. And the other thing is that when we're stressed, we tend to really narrow our gaze. So we become very focused. And this is also how many of us work now. We spend a lot of time with a narrow gaze looking at a screen. Um, And so getting away from your desk and giving yourself panoramic vision. So looking at a window, going outside, forcing your eyes to look far away because your eyes are part of your brain. They're in direct contact with your brain and they're going to send a signal that you're safe because when when you're safe, you're not sort of focusing your vision. You're very happy to sort of look around you. And so go and get some fresh air. I think getting into green space is a universal thing for our well-being and combine that with, you know, taking your eyes away from this narrow gaze and some deep breaths and um, then save the other stuff for when you're not feeling so stressed. So that's kind of like future-proofing. So the meditation and the mindfulness and, um, you know, engaging in in ways that you can support your social health, practicing gratitude, um, you know, yoga, even exercise or anything that you enjoy, engaging in activities that you enjoy. Um, I think those are going to be the things that we should be doing regularly, that kind of empty our stress cup so that when the stressful moments come all, come along, it's not going to overflow too easily. Um, and so sort of pick and choose the things that you like doing. For me, I'm just not a meditator as much as I try, but, you know, we all kind of find our own tools um, and save those for when you, you're you not in that stressful moment. So it's kind of help you deal with those when they come. Um, and the other thing I, I'm quite a fan of is, is hormesis um, and this, idea that short-term stress is good for us. So putting yourself through a short-term stressful act deliberately. So doing a really high intensity exercise class, for example, or something I like to do in Brighton is like run into the sea in the middle of the winter when it's like freezing cold and there's frost on the beach because it's like a short, sharp stress on my body, but I'm deliberately doing it. I know I'm safe. I know I'm only going to stay as long as I can manage. And then I'm going to go home to my warm house and you know get dry and uh, that kind of helps you get used to the stress chemistry in your body and again it kind of helps you buffer those stressful moments when they come fascinating fascinating it's all about that regulation bringing yourself back down and using that burst of inflammation Mm -hmm. appropriately um that 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 same that seems really important thank you so much jenna um I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long and I'm so, so happy to finally manage to make it happen. And I I just want, yeah, I'm so glad. And, um, what, what are you, what are you working on right now, Jenna? What, what's, what's filling your cup? What are you up to? (laughs) The juggle, the juggle. I'm just kind of trying to keep sort of positivity alive because, like everyone, I'm, it's going on a long time now since I've seen my family, currently chatting in the middle of the third national lockdown. And yeah, it's a really busy time because the term has just started at the university where I teach. So I'm trying to get lots of uh, students excited about their immune systems, um, which actually is quite easy at the time of a pandemic because there's lots of great examples for them to see why immunology is so important and what the immunology community has, has done globally over the last year to sort of um, move things along so um, yeah and other than that just kind of 
uh, working on a few little projects on the side when I can, juggling the homeschool, <laughs> getting through each day. It's really day as it comes at the moment. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely is. Well, thank you so much for fitting in this conversation. And I'll pop a note of your book, your, um, I'll put your website on. And and I know you've got, I'm always following you on Instagram and checking out what amazing recipes you're putting on there to boost our immune systems and see you running into the sea. (laughs) and in horror from my side (laughs) uh, tell yourself it's not as cold as I thought it was going to be and somehow that helps make it a bit better (laughs) (laughs) and then my mind would be telling me all sorts of other messages Maybe, maybe one day. Thank you so, so much for your time, Jenna. It was an absolute Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. If you have any questions relating to this episode, or you have a topic you would like me to explore on the next podcast, shoot me a DM on Instagram at Dr. Body Mind Soul. 